turn in our Bibles to Luke 23. Luke 23, last Sunday we considered the articles of the Apostles' Creed. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified. Today we look at the rest of that, dead, buried, descended into hell. So we begin our reading at verse 34. And at this point in the narrative, Jesus has already been affixed to the cross. And now we read the rest of the narrative. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in the letters of Greek and Latin, and Hebrew, this is the king of the Jews. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And all the people that came together to that site, beholding the things which were done, smote their breasts and returned. And all his acquaintance and the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off, beholding these things. And behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and a just. The same had not consented to the counsel and deed of them. He was of Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. This man went unto Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone, wherein never man before was laid. And that day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew on. And the women also which came with him from Galilee followed after, and beheld the sepulcher and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments and rested the Sabbath day, a 
according to the commandment. Let's consider the teaching of our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 16. Why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Because with respect to the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made no otherwise than by the death of the Son of God. Why was he also buried, thereby to prove that he was really dead? Since then, Christ died for us, why must we also die? Our death is not a satisfaction for our sins, but only an abolishing of sin and a passage into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross? That by virtue thereof, our old man is crucified, dead, and buried with him. That so the corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no more reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves unto him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Why is there added he descended into hell? That in my greatest temptations I may be assured and wholly comfort myself in this, that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies, in which he was plunged during all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, hath delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. Together with all Christians throughout the ages, we confess, I believe in Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, who died for me, was buried, and descended into hell. By this confession of faith, we are affirming the truth concerning the death, burial, and descent of Jesus Christ into hell. Now, there are a lot of people, probably right here in town as well, who if you went up to them and asked them, they would say, yes, I acknowledge and believe that this Jesus actually died. Even the most ardent atheist you could find would probably say, yes, I will acknowledge that there was a man named Jesus and that he died, and even died on a cross, and was buried just like all other men. They read that here in the Gospels, just like we did, or perhaps they searched it up on the internet, on Wikipedia, they learned about this Jesus, and that he was a man who lived and died just like the rest of us. But that is not a confession of true faith regarding the death, burial, and descent into hell of Jesus Christ. True faith confesses that Jesus Christ died for me. And he died for me because the justice and truth of God required satisfaction for the sins that I committed 
And that satisfaction could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. That's what true faith confesses about the death of Jesus Christ. True faith gives us amazing comfort as we face our own death, which, unless the Lord returns first, is an inevitability for all of us. It gives us tremendous comfort as we face our death and what lies beyond death. And this true faith also manifests itself, as we will see in the Lord's Day, in a life that is not reigned, not dominated by the corrupt inclinations of the flesh, but a life in which the believer offers himself to Christ as a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And we will get into that in the third point. I call your attention then to the Lord's Day under the theme, the death of Jesus Christ. First of all, let's look at the meaning of that, then the comfort, and finally the further benefit. The article of our faith that we are considering today is, I believe that Jesus Christ died. He was buried. He descended into hell for me to pay for my sins and to give me salvation. What is the meaning of the death of Jesus Christ? When we think of death, we automatically think of what we know from experience, what we know from seeing it. We have all seen death. And from experience, we know that death means that an animal or a person gives up the ghost. That person breathes his last breath, he closes his eyes, and he departs from this world into the next. He ceases to be alive in this world. But there is a lot more to death than that, what we can see. In the scriptures, God reveals to us the deeper and the true nature of death in all of its dimensions. The scriptures teach us that when God said to Adam and Eve in the beginning that if you sin, you will surely die, that not only referred to coming to the end of earthly existence and giving up the ghost, but it also referred to perishing forever and ever in hell. Scripture teaches that there is a place that God created called Sheol in the Hebrew, or Hades in the Greek, or Gehenna, a real place which we know as hell. And hell is the place where God brings upon the sinner the second death after he gives up the ghost. It is called the lake of fire. It is called a place where the worm eats and never stops eating. It is called the outer darkness. The meaning, then, of the death of Jesus Christ is not merely that he gave up the ghost. In fact, before Jesus gave up the ghost, he experienced the deeper and more profound and fuller reality of death when he was still on the cross. Before he gave up the ghost, he descended into hell, as we confess in our creed. According to Lord's Day 16, he descended into hell 
during all of his sufferings, but especially on the cross. It is not true, as many Christians believe, that after Jesus gave up the ghost, after he died and was buried, then he descended into hell. That's not true. We know that from Scripture. They tried to argue from Scripture that after he died and was buried, Jesus somehow, in body or in soul, went to hell, either to complete his sufferings or to announce his victory to the damned. But that never happened. The scriptures do not teach that, and that cannot be proven. Rather, the Reformed faith has always taught, and the Heidelberg Catechism teaches, that Jesus Christ descended into hell before he gave up the ghost. He descended into hell when he was on the cross. We know that, too, because even our narrative that we read teaches that when Jesus gave up the ghost, he commended his spirit to God. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Today I will be with you in paradise. And at that moment he gave up the ghost. His spirit did not descend into hell, but his spirit ascended into paradise. And his body was lovingly taken down from the cross and buried in the new tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Jesus Christ did not descend into hell after he died and was buried, but before he breathed his last breath. That's part of the meaning of the death of Christ, that while he was still on the cross, he descended into hell. And the meaning is not then that when he was on the cross, in some strange, inexplainable way, either in his body or in his soul, Jesus actually went to the place of hell. But what we confess is that while he was hanging on the cross, body and soul, God brought hell to him. In the scriptures, hell is a place, a real place, a place of terrifying darkness, a lake of fire, a place of sufferings where God pours out his wrath on the sinner for his sins. But the essence of hell is not a place, although hell is a place. The essence of hell is the experience of darkness and forsakenness and being isolated and separated and rejected by God because of my sins. As the Catechism teaches, it is inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies. And that God can bring to a person anywhere. Jesus Christ descended into hell when he was on the cross. As we read in Luke 23, particularly verse 44, when it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour, and the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. It was particularly at that moment in the history of the world that the Son of God in our flesh descended into hell because God brought hell to the cross. Hell is the outer darkness. Darkness means you cannot see, there is no light. 
Darkness means you are isolated, you are alone, you are forsaken, and you are suffering the wrath of God, separated from all fellowship with other creatures and from God especially. God brought that darkness to Calvary that day for three hours. In the middle of the day at high noon when the sun usually shines its bright rays down and fills the world with light, there was pitch darkness on the earth. And that darkness was concentrated at the cross of Calvary. Because there at the cross of Calvary was the Son of God in our flesh, hanging upon the cross, bearing our sins, suffering, dying in our place. It was especially there on the cross that our Lord Jesus Christ suffered the agonies, the terrors, the pains of hell for your and my sins. The hell that Jesus suffered on the cross is the unlimited immeasurable, infinite, and inexpressible suffering of the wrath of God. We cannot express it, the Catechism says. We cannot really understand it fully. What does that mean? That the Son of God actually suffered hell. And not just hell for one sin, but hell for all the sins of all of his elect that he was bearing on his shoulders there as he hung on the cross inexpressible, immeasurable, unlimited anguish. And therefore we can see why it was necessary, as the Catechism asks, for Christ to humble himself even unto death. Why was it necessary? It was necessary because we could not do that. We could not die enough. The punishment for sin is not just that you give up the ghost. The punishment for sin is that you die for all eternity. For all eternity you suffer and bear the immeasurable, inexpressible anguish and terror and pain of hell. We could not do that. We could not endure that. We could not exhaust that. It is infinite and immeasurable. We would have to die in hell forever and ever unto all eternity, and even then we would never exhaust and make satisfaction for our sins. That's why only the eternal Son of God himself, who is himself truly God, was able to suffer and endure that everlasting death and sufferings of hell. In a moment of time, he did it. What would take us all eternity, it took him three hours in the midst of the darkness of hell on the cross. And that three hours doesn't mean it actually took him that long, but it is teaching us, it is revealing us that he, the powerful Lord and Savior, was able to endure and exhaust all of that suffering in a moment, three short hours, and it was finished. That's the meaning of his descent into hell. And after that, we are told in the narrative that he cried with a loud voice, verse 46. What he cried there is not recorded, but it is in the other Gospels. It's what we said last week, too. He cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was in the depths of hell, 
when he cried that for one last time. And he summoned strength and cried out again, it is finished. And then, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he gave up the ghost. Which means that his human spirit departed from his human body. His human spirit ascended into heaven right at that moment. Paradise. And shortly after, his human body was carefully taken down from the cross by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who had not consented to the judgment of the Sanhedrin, but who believed in this crucified Savior. And they wrapped his body and laid his body in the tomb in which never before had any man lain. And the Catechism asks, why was he also buried? And the answer is, to prove that he was really dead. Indeed, Joseph and Nicodemus would not have wrapped him and buried him in the tomb if he was still breathing, if his heart was still beating, if there was still life in his body. There wasn't. He was truly dead, fully dead. He entered into the full reality of death, body and soul. And that's why he was buried, to prove to us, to demonstrate to us, to comfort us with the truth. He entered the full reality of death, even that grave, that dark, cold grave. His body went into it, and that proves to us the gospel truth. It is finished. What a comfort, then. A comfort to us who believe in Jesus Christ. Tremendous comfort. The Catechism is always telling us about our comfort and how this is a comfort to us. What is the comfort in the death of Jesus Christ? All of our comfort rests upon his death. And the Catechism highlights a couple of specific things. First of all, that in my greatest temptations, I may be assured and wholly comfort myself in this, that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his inexpressible anguish, hath delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. That's a comfort that we need so badly. That's a comfort that we need because we are tempted, constantly tempted, to fear death and hell. And perhaps as we draw nearer to the end of our life, we think more often about death and we think more often about hell as that terrible and awful and fearful reality. The Catechism says that in my greatest temptations I may have comfort. In my greatest temptations, what is your greatest temptation? Is it the temptation to commit this carnal sin or that lustful sin? The greatest temptation is to be afraid of hell. To be afraid that I, because of all of the multitude of my sins, because of my deserving to go to hell, am really going to hell. I'm going to suffer for all eternity in hell. And when that darkness creeps over your soul, 
the same darkness that crept over Calvary and covered the earth for three hours, when that darkness creeps into your soul and you start to doubt and to fear and to think about eternity forsaken by God in the hellish fires of darkness, that is the greatest possible fear. And our mortal enemy, the devil, who is going there, tempts us. He wants us to fear that everlasting desolation. He comes to us, serpent that he is, and he whispers into our souls and minds how wicked and abominable we are. And he tries to instill doubt in our souls. You know, you know you're not going to heaven. You don't deserve to go to heaven. You're a wicked, depraved sinner. You're going to hell, and you know it. When that creeps into the soul, when that doubt starts to grow in the mind, what a horrible fear. The Catechism says, in my greatest temptations, I may be assured and wholly comfort myself in this, that my Lord Jesus Christ, he suffered the inexpressible anguish of hell the pains, the torments, the wrath, the destruction that I deserved. He suffered that for me. He suffered that on the cross. He suffered that in the darkness of Golgotha, forsaken that I might never be forsaken, rejected that I might not be rejected, despised that I might not be despised, but accepted of God, cursed, cursed he was, so that I might be blessed. That's what I may assure and wholly comfort myself in by faith that Jesus Christ loved me and gave himself for me and descended into hell for me and died for me to deliver me from that dreadful place. What a comfort there is in the death of Jesus Christ. And in the second place, there is comfort and there is a need for comfort because we all will die. The Catechism asks, since then Christ died for us, if that is true, and it is, He died for us. Why must we also die? Why would the catechism ask that? Well, because the writers of the catechism looked around them and they saw people dying. They saw Christians dying of the Black Plague, of wars, of murder, of drowning, of bullets and swords, and all manner of death, even Christians. And so they ask, if Christ died for us, why must we also die? It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem just. If Christ fully paid the price for us through his death, why do we still have to pay the price? Why do we still have to die? Why do we still have to suffer? Why do we have to go through that? And the answer of the catechism is that you don't have to pay the price. You don't have to make satisfaction for your sins. There is no more payment for you to make. 
The death of Jesus Christ was the satisfaction for your sins, the full and complete payment. God forgives your sins. God blots them out. He doesn't remember them anymore. Your death is not a punishment. It is not the outpouring of God's wrath upon you. It is not the penalty for your sin. Christ took the penalty. Why then must we still die? The Catechism says. Ah, and here we enter into deep mysteries, don't we? How wondrous are the ways of God, unfathomed and unknown. God could, in his righteousness and justice, take every one of his elect people home to glory without dying. The payment is finished. The satisfaction is there. God would be just to take us all home to glory without letting us die, as he took Elijah up in the chariot of fire. God is not pleased to do that. God is infinitely wise. He knows so much better than we do. And God, in his infinite wisdom, has determined from all eternity that his son would make satisfaction for our sins on the cross, but we would still die. That is, we would still give up the ghost. We would not plunge into hell, but we would go through the process of giving up our human soul in death. Why did God in his perfect wisdom determine that? And how can we fit that with other scriptures? Because the scriptures reveal and teach to us that it was God's infinitely wise good pleasure that through the death of Jesus Christ, he would cause all things to work together for good to those who love him, who are the called according to his purpose. As the apostle says so triumphantly in Romans 8, whether life or death or principalities or powers or things to come or things present or angels or demons or heights or depths, all things must work together for our good. That was God's infinitely wise good pleasure not necessarily to free us from going through the passageway of death, but to reverse the function of death. You see, the function of death is to punish the sinner for his sins. But we do not die as a punishment for our sins. Because we who are in Christ enjoy this blessed benefit that the function of death for us has been reversed. God has changed that greatest evil, that last enemy. He has changed it so that now it serves our good. Death which is normally functioning as a punishment for sin, is now reversed, and it is an abolishing of sin. 
the catechism says. We are still sinful. We still have this flesh. And God has changed death so that now we pass through death as a way of stripping away that old man of sin. That's what happens when we die. Christ strips away that old, totally depraved nature which still cleaves to us. And that's one of the reasons we have to die. Through death, God will set us free fully and completely and at last from that depraved nature. And secondly, the Catechism says, death, which normally functions as a passageway into hell, God has reversed it, and now it is a passageway into eternal life. How wondrous are the ways of God, unfathomed and unknown. That he would take that dark, terrible, fearful reality of death and change it into a doorway, into paradise. That's a great comfort. The unbelievers around us don't have that comfort. The unbeliever foolishly tries to convince himself that death is the end of all existence. That's it. That's the end. Nothing more. Utter foolishness. Or the unbeliever tries to make himself numb with regard to death. He tries to numb his fear. He tries to make himself callous to fear. And one of the ways that is done is through a constant stream of references to death in the movies, in the music, in the television shows, in our culture. There's a saturation and a fascination with death, violence and death, killing, murder, so that we become numb to it. Or the unbeliever becomes morbidly obsessed with death, so that all he thinks about is death. Or the unbeliever simply lives in uncontrollable terror from day to day. The child of God, redeemed through the cross of Jesus Christ, has comfort that as I face my death, God is not about to punish me, but God is going to abolish my indwelling sin. And he's going to open up the doors and take me into paradise. Today, thou shalt be with me in paradise, Jesus said to the thief. And that's what Jesus says to every one of God's children on that day Whenever it comes, today you will be with me in paradise. You believe that? There's another benefit that we receive as Christians from the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. The Catechism says, What further benefit do we receive? This. 
that by virtue of the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross, our old man is crucified, dead, and buried with him. And what's the result of that? The Catechism teaches us this is the result. The corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no more reign in us, but we may offer ourselves unto him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. To put it in other words, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross not only gives us the benefit of justification, but also sanctification. By nature, we are totally depraved. As we learn in Lord's Day 3, we are so corrupt that we are wholly inclined to all wickedness. And we are incapable of doing any good. We are that bad, that totally corrupt. By nature, sin reigns over us like a king sitting on the throne of our hearts. And as king, sin tells us how to live, how to think, what to do. But Jesus Christ died and was buried and descended into hell for this purpose, that our sinful and corrupt and totally depraved nature will be crucified with him. It will die with him. It will be buried with him. It will be killed with him. And now, when the Lord Jesus Christ, risen and ascended up into heaven, pours his spirit down upon us and into our souls, the Holy Spirit unites us to him. And when we are united to him, we are united to his death. We become one with him so that all that happened to him happens to us. When he died at our regeneration, we die. We're crucified. We're buried. That's the doctrine of regeneration. At that very moment, we call it regeneration, that very moment when you are united to Christ, the benefit comes down to you that your totally depraved nature is crucified. The result is that from now on, sin is not the king in our hearts and in our lives. We have a heart. It's the deepest part of our soul, the most innermost, centermost, part of our spirit is our heart. By nature, sin sits on the throne. Being regenerated, it's kicked off the throne. And Christ sits on that throne. And that's what the Apostle Paul teaches in Romans chapter 6, which I would ask you to open and read a little bit with me. Romans chapter 6 and chapter 7, where he speaks of this very truth. When he speaks of us being baptized into Christ, 
He refers not merely to that outward baptism, but to the inward baptism of regeneration in verse 3 and verse 4. And he says that by baptism or through regeneration, we are buried with Christ. In verse 5, if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death. And verse 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. And then he says, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. How must you think of yourself this way? I am dead to sin. And then verse 12, Therefore, let not sin reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God. Verse 14, sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. That's the benefit of the death of Jesus Christ. Sin no longer has dominion over us. Now, that does not mean that we no longer have a totally depraved flesh. That's still there. It's the old man. The old man is still old. He's still corrupt. He's still depraved. He's still there. He's in us, but he's not on the throne. He's not dominating us like before. He doesn't have that right. It's been taken away. We do still have a corrupt, sinful nature that is totally depraved. And that's the reason we still sin. That's the reason the same apostle says in the very next chapter, chapter 7, he describes his wrestling with sin, and at the end he says, Oh, wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from the body of this death? Oh, wretched man that I am, he said, that as a believer, as a child of God, sin wasn't reigning over his heart. He was crucified with Christ, but he still struggled with sin. That corrupt nature was still there, and he's still struggling with it. But the benefit of the death of Jesus Christ is that sin no longer has dominion over us. Now, what does that mean practically? It means practically that we must never say, if we are a Christian, I can't stop this sin. Because I'm totally depraved. It's a wicked thing to say. When the word of God comes to us and says, sin does not have dominion over you, don't say that. And then you say, yes, but I struggle. And then the word of God says, yes, we all do. We all struggle. 
We wrestle with sin. We wrestle with it. It's a beast. Don't say that you can't stop. Don't say that. As a Christian, you can't say that. You can. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can. Not because I can of my own strength or, or ability or will. Or I can because I am been crucified with Christ and he lives in me. And he's broken the dominion of sin. That's a marvelous, marvelous truth. The unbeliever doesn't experience that. Sin rules over him. There's nothing he can do but sin. It's not true of us as believers. We can stop sinning, not perfectly, until we get to heaven. But we can. We can. We can make a beginning. And sometimes it's hard, especially when a, when a child of God, although sin doesn't have dominion over him, yet he is not walking carefully with the Lord and he falls into sinful habits and they become habits, deeply ingrained habits, and he can't break out of those habits. And he starts to feel like, Sin has dominion over me. Not in principle. Your old man is dead. If you are a Christian, you are dead to sin. That gives the Christian great hope as we struggle with our sins, doesn't it? The hope we can, by God's grace, break free from this or that sin. And the result then is that we offer ourselves to Christ as a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Are you thankful for all that Christ has done for you? As we've heard it preached again today, Thanksgiving, the catechism says. The catechism is always teaching us that the Christian life arises out of thanksgiving. What is it that motivates us to fight against that sin? To abound in good works. Is this the motivation? If you do good works, you will get something. If you do good works, you'll merit something. You'll merit a blessing. You'll merit salvation. No. Does that really motivate us? What motivates us as Christians? Thanksgiving. What has God done for me? What has he done for me? His own son beloved son he gave to die for me and through his death he's broken the power of sin so that now we are able we are by God's grace to offer ourselves sacrifices of thanksgiving so now we begin a new week we go home we go back to work, back to our families, our marriages, 
our friendships, our social life. We've heard the gospel. We've heard how much comfort we have. We don't have to be afraid of death and hell because it's a passageway into paradise. As we plunge into the week to come, may that blessed thought fill us with joyful determination to offer ourselves to Christ. Sacrifices of thanksgiving. How do we do that? By growing in our love for him who first loved us. By growing in our love for each other as husbands and wives. By growing in our love for our neighbor whom we meet on the street who is in need. We abound offering ourselves sacrifices which means sometimes we do things that are not convenient for us but we sacrifice we deny ourselves and our selfish instincts and desires to serve others we do that because of all he has done for us amen heavenly father we do give thanks to thee for all that thou hast done for us in the death of thy son, Jesus Christ. The gospel, Father, never ceases to amaze us with its power, its beauty, its wonder. We cannot fathom the depths of thy fatherly heart towards thy people. Thou hast given thy son for us, and he has suffered such inexpressible anguish in order to pay for all our sins, to set us free. May the knowledge of that, Father, fill our hearts with joy and comfort and hope as we plunge into the week to come. Whatever our callings may be, whether we are young or old, married or single, working or retired, give us grace that we might fight the battle against sin, that we might experience victory, that we might offer ourselves sacrifices of thanksgiving to thee. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.